Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. Well, good morning, East Haven. I'll tell you what, I'm going to make that not rhetorical this morning just for fun. Good morning. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here today. Uh, so appreciate our time of worship. And of course, as we think about last week, as we talked about worship, our audience is God. And I'm watching and singing uh, these songs of worship that all of which I'm familiar with, and they're vertical in nature. Uh, and that's a good thing. Our audience is God, our content's the truth, and our posture should reflect that. Also today, uh, my beautiful, talented, lovely wife, Kathy, is with me, and Kathy is a part of the worship team at Pine Lake in Madison, where our son is the worship pastor, so we're trying to make sure that we honor those commitments, and then she comes with me, and that is awesome. Let me tell you about my wife for just a moment for the sake of an understanding here. Guys, I love my wife. She is beautiful. She is godly. She's an incredible mother. She is an incredible wife. She's an incredible pastor's wife. Sensitive, thoughtful, relational. She has some project wiring in her. She is a phenomenal teacher. She is amazing. And I want you to know today, as as much as is possible humanly, I love my wife unconditionally. She is beautiful, and I love her. Now, if you're a young guy in the room in particular, I want to go ahead and tell you, it's really smart to brag on your wife like that. that. That's a smooth move. Some of you older guys need to know that too. But I want to show you something. Kathy Mays, come here, dear. Now, I want you to watch this, and I want you to feel this with me. Ta-da. Give me your hand, baby. Kathy Mays. I love you. You are beautiful. You're an amazing mother and wife. You're a sensitive and and relational pastor's wife. Uh, You are just a phenomenal teacher. You're a soulmate. And I want you to know, as much as is possible, humanly speaking, I love you with all of my heart unconditionally. Love me too. I just got applause for kissing my wife. That's fantastic. Okay, that might have looked like some sort of self-serving illustration, but let me make a point. You appreciated and she appreciated when I talked about her. So when I'm talking about she's beautiful and she's a phenomenal teacher, and she's a a wonderful mother and a beautiful wife, and she is a tremendous uh, pastor's wife. You appreciated that. She appreciated that. But did you feel the difference when I looked her in the eye and said that to her and then exchanged a kiss? As the church in our culture, that's not about you, but it's just broad brush. 
the church in our culture has gotten really good about talking about God, but not recognizing his presence and speaking to him. And our audience is God. It's not each other. The content is not self-serving for us. It's not for God to say simply, I see you learning about me. But it's, it's a relationship that results in obedience because we're in the very presence of God who, like my wife, I'm able to look at and say, I have this relationship with you and you are changing the language just a bit, beautiful and exalted. I am building you up. I'm telling you how much I love you and how deeply I appreciate you. And I'm extending affection to you because I love you and who you are in my life. And when I talked about worship last week and when I listened to the song set this morning, it was a reminder that that's what we're about. We're about responding to the grace of God exalting him and lifting him up. It is an actual relationship that we're enjoying corporately and individually in this room. That's what worship's about. So when your audience is God, there is no reason to hold back because he's the king of glory. He's the beginning and the end. He is our creator and sustainer. In him, all things move and have their being. He is the root of all existence, and he loves us by his grace for his glory, so we respond in worship to him. Now, again, I don't have an agenda for how we look or what songs we sing or any of that. I don't have some sort of spiritual gifts agenda. I don't have any of that. I just want us to recognize the presence of God in this place. Paul wrote the church at Corinth and he said, do you not know that Jesus is with you? What I've done over the last several weeks, when I spoke about six weeks ago, uh, Dustin George was in Tennessee at the church in which he now serves. And I talked about the church in broad strokes of purpose and passion and perspective. And then as your pastor transitioned and I came to be with you three weeks ago, I talked about the pastor, the overseer, the elder, the shepherd, how scripture talks about those roles out of the same word that's translated, depending on context, in a number of different ways in our Bible. And how God gives these high standards, these expectations for those who choose to be or or want to be Uh, look to be an elder or an overseer or a pastor or a shepherd. And then talked about last week worship as the foundational component of why the church exists. It's a purpose of the church and it's really foundational. And I quoted John Piper who said, even missions, and I would argue everything else we do fundamentally uh, exist because we want to be worshipers. We want to be aligned with God. The book of Revelation talks about every tribe and tongue and nation as worshipers. The book of Philippians says that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, confess that Jesus is Lord. We're going to ultimately be worshipers, and that is the goal. Even as we share Christ and we make disciples, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, as we make disciples, and if you make disciples, and they're really disciples, they will make disciples as well. So we're making disciples that make disciples. We do all of that out of a response to the grace and the presence of God. 
So last week it was audience and content and posture and with no specific agenda except we want to respond to who God is. The church is in an interesting way in our nation. Uh, This gives away my age, but in 1974 I left my home in Columbus and went to Mississippi College. And I began to look at churches, and I went to a couple of different churches before I served some churches. I served a a new church uh, my sophomore year. My junior year, I went to serve a church that, well, it no longer exists. I traveled on the road with a Christian ministry singing group for the better part of three years, and I served a church that actually no longer exists. In 1982, I went to a church to be the minister of youth and recreation. We had a gym. There was a thriving sports program. Uh, We had great ministry, and ministry happened there for a long season. I was there almost 10 years. That church as such no longer exists. In 1974, in, in those early years of my ministry life in Jackson, Mississippi, and some of you will relate because you were there. You were in some of these places and neighborhoods, but there were some great churches, Calvary Baptist Church in Jackson, just about 20 years prior to my arriving in 1974, was the largest church, Baptist church, or church, I believe, in Mississippi. But it had begun to decline in attendance and membership. Oak Forest was a thriving church in South Jackson. It's gone. Woodville Heights is gone. Briarwood Baptist Church is gone. Robinson Street Baptist Church is gone. Westview Baptist Church is gone. Woodland Hills Baptist Church is gone. West Jackson Baptist Church is gone. They're gone. God is not obligated to maintain a particular body of people, a particular institution. Now, his body, the body of Christ, the church, God protects because it's the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, and he'll propagate that as people are obedient to him. But God is not obligated to make churches, institutions, locations in a neighborhood or a city successful. He has no obligation to that. That's not God's agenda. God's agenda is that the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, is healthy. And if we're healthy, we exist for purpose. And the purpose ultimately, I would argue, last week ultimately is worship, but there are some purposes in Scripture that we've got to be obedient to as the church in order to to thrive and to be healthy. It's pretty interesting. I'm looking at some statistics. The Pew Research Organization, it's P-E-W, think church pew, but you'll see them quoted in the news quite often. Uh, This quote this week, Robert Mayfield sent me this, Christianity could possibly become a minority religion in the U.S. as early as 2045. In 2020, 47% of Americans said they belong to a church, (coughs) excuse me, or a house of worship. That's down from 70% of Americans in 1999. In the 90s, about 90% of U.S. adults identified as Christians. Let me do that for you again. In the 90s, about 90% of adults identified as Christians. 
In 2007, by the same research, 2007 now, 15 years ago, it was down to 78%. Since 2007, the share that identifies as nuns, no religious affiliation, has grown from 16 to 29%. In other words, a third of Americans claim no religious affiliation. Teenagers are leaving the church in really unprecedented numbers. I would argue that in recent history of our country, that teenagers, as they enter the workforce or their college years, whichever direction and whatever they do, would tend to have to re-identify their own faith and religion and commitment to the body of Christ. That's not a new phenomena, but they're leaving the church really in unprecedented numbers. Uh, Many cite a number of reasons in research for why this is true. Now, I've got a working theory about that. I've had the opportunity here. You've been very gracious to allow me to speak about parenting a couple of times over the last few years. Uh, I think there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, But this is what the research tells us. Six reasons, according to Barna Research. Number one, churches seem overprotective. And the quote was, they tend to demonize everything outside of the church. And they ignore real world problems. Number two, church is boring. Fully a third of young adults from 18 to 30 who stepped outside of the church says the church is boring. Uh, And you would think that's simply about the lack of entertainment value or uh, up-to-date media or something. But a high number of those said the Bible is not taught clearly or often enough. And God seems missing from my experience of church. Mm. Number three, churches come across as antagonistic to science. So in the struggle of reconciling what we think we know as science develops, uh, many young adults, particularly in the university track, are confronted with worldviews that are different than a biblical worldview. And being unable to reconcile that, they see the church as antagonistic to those educational intellectual pursuits. Number four, um, young Christians suggests that church experiences related to sexuality are often simplistic or judgmental. I used the word a couple of weeks ago that this culture is pretty untethered. We're untethered to moral absolutes and the residual of the Christian faith in which most of us live in our organizations, in our schools in Brookhaven, Mississippi. But the world as has just lost that tethering. The loudest voice, the most compelling lobby, tends to become the baseline for moral understanding in our nation. We're removed from God's Word. And many young adults leave the church because the world is screaming loudly, anything goes, and the church is saying, no, there is a standard that God's placed before us. Number five, Young adults leave the church because they wrestle with the exclusive nature of Christianity. 30% said Christians are afraid of the beliefs of other faith. 20% said the church is like a country club 
only for insiders. The exclusive nature of Christianity without talking about apologetics or worldview. Let me say it this way for you. Uh, and, and I'm a simple guy. And simple helps me. Christianity is exclusive. Let me say that again. Christianity is exclusive. It says there is no way to the Father but through Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The lie of it in our culture is that even the religions or the worldviews that appear to be inclusive by philosophical definition or not, those inclusive worldviews are either true or they're not. Every worldview is exclusive. You can't believe everything because everything is contradictory. It's the law of non-contradiction. Everybody believes what they believe is true, even if they believe that whatever anybody believes is true. It is the conundrum that we live in now where if I believe and identify as a cat, I'm requiring you to believe I'm a cat. For the record, I am not a cat. I'm a cool cat. I've been told that. I'm not a cat. But we live in the world where it is against the rules to argue for reality because we are so untethered from truth that whatever I speak in a compelling way, you ought to be obligated to believe. And young adults who've grown up in that kind of worldview and those kind of thoughts that are logical, logical progressions, extrapolations of there's no absolute truth are offended when somebody in the church says, no, you're not a cat And we are exclusive because Jesus, who went to the cross, rose from the dead, was prophesied about for 2,000 years, performed miracles, walked in time and space as the God-man lives, it is an exclusive gospel. But it's hard to reconcile that in a world where there are no absolutes. And number six, the reason young adults tend to leave the church, according to the research, is the church feels unfriendly to those who doubt to those who doubt. And the fact of the matter, I'm just going to say it. We're going to be real, real this morning. Most of us at some point have doubts. Just, just to amuse me, can I get an amen? amen? You do. At some point, you're going to wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning, and you're going to stare at the ceiling, and you're going to ask some questions about life. You're going to ask some questions to the God who lives inside of you by the presence of the Holy Spirit as a response to your response to his faithful graciousness and sovereignty in your life. You're probably going to wake up and have a moment. Or you're going to be confronted with some piece of evidence, history, science, worldview, and you're going to say, now is that true or is what God says true? You're going to have some doubts. But many times, because we are confident in the exclusivity and the truth of God's word, those who have doubts sometimes, particularly as young adults, will feel like there's no place for me to verbalize those. Because we handle doubt sometimes by pretending we don't have them. But you have them. Once in a while, you're going to drive through a cemetery, and you're going to look at a loved one's gravesite, and you're going to have a doubt for a moment. And I want to tell you that that's okay. That's the struggle 
of living in this earthly tent, this flesh and blood body, but we know that the truth of Christ holds us and the hope of Christ, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, leaves us as people not without hope, but we have the hope of the resurrection. Top five reasons according to Lifeway that people left the faith as young adults. Uh, They moved to college. They said church members seemed judgmental or hypocritical. They didn't feel connected. And by the way, that's a real thing. You come out of a youth group or you come out of your home and your parents and you move away or you move to another season of life, it's hard to reconnect. Or I disagree with the church where it stands on political or social issues or my work prevented me from really being engaged in the church. Today, as we think about sort of the challenges and the bad news of what happens in some churches, I want to talk about evangelism because that's the way God propagates the kingdom of God is evangelism. It's sharing the message of Jesus from generation to generation. Every day, statistically, in the United States, there are approximately 100 churches that close. There are between three and 4,000, some have said as many as 4,500 churches that close a year now. Uh, the actual statistic in 19, just so you know, um, was there were 4,500 churches that closed in 2019. Now think about that. That was pre-pandemic as well. Uh, 3,000 new churches were planted. That doesn't keep us at a net of zero. Uh, and then we walk, walked through the COVID pandemic, which really put the pressure on small fellowships in particular. With all of this reality and kind of challenge of young adults leaving transitions and church closings and and grayings or diminishing, uh, what's the good news and what's God's plan? God has a strategy and it really is evangelism. So out of purposes of the church, we're to be worshipers And we're to propagate or share the truth of the grace of God to others. That's evangelism. Gosh, when I say evangelism, even now, I kind of go to the Billy Graham model. Anybody feel me? You know, Billy Graham's such an icon that God used in such powerful ways. Or evangelist. Um, that's, That's what we sometimes think about evangelism. Or those of us who've been around for a season... We think of evangelism along the, the, uh, the line of some sort of program. So it's evangelism explosion or steps to peace with God and how to share your faith or the Win Institute. We, we've lived in those things so long. Today I want us to look at a passage of scripture. I want us to see clearly a principle about life change and reporting that. And then I want to give you one of the world's simplest but most important outlines. If you have a Bible this morning, would you join me in John chapter 9? John 9. While you're turning, I'll just quote again as we talk about evangelism. My heart that's reflected in Romans, the first chapter, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to everyone who believes 
for their salvation, first the Jew, then the Gentile. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is central to my life as God has been gracious to save me. What is the gospel? As you've turned to John, the ninth chapter, we're going to look at an encounter with Jesus, but the gospel fundamentally is sharing the good news of the gospel, our salvation. Some might say it's communicating the hope we have in Jesus, or perhaps to communicate the life-giving message of the gospel and making disciples of those who will make disciples. The gospel by very definition is good news, and that's the good news that those of us who are lost and hopeless find salvation and hope in our life and our relationship with Christ. Just before we read out of John 9, could we pray together just one more moment? Father, I just want to take a moment and thank you for your presence in this place. We're grateful that this morning we've had the privilege of worshiping you, and I just take a moment to say, God, please It would be my prayer to your glory that you would empower your word, change our hearts, conform us more and more to the image of Jesus. These things I pray on our behalf in the name of Jesus. Amen. John 9, the first verse and following. This is a story you know. Uh, There's a great, there are a lot of great principles in here, a lot of truth. But uh, we're going to mine one of those principles this morning. John 9. Talking about Jesus, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word meant sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who were formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No. He only looks like him, but he himself insisted, I am the man. And then were your eyes opened, they demanded? And he replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind Now the day on which Jesus had made his mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. And man replied, he is a prophet. 
The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. And he replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. This is an incredible passage for so many reasons. It's important from the outset that we see that the passage tells us that the person, this man, was born blind. He'd always been blind. And blind, uh, challenged, handicapped in the parlance we might have used at some time, almost always required a person to move to the, the area where beggars sat because there was no easy way to earn a living or to be overly productive in this world. So he was known. He had probably sat there and begged. We don't know the age of the man. Maybe he was 20 or 30 or 40. We just don't know. But he was obviously a grown man, and he was in a place where beggars sit. And Jesus sees this need as the passage continues. And I don't know why the Lord does what he does in the way he does it. And the scripture is, is so interesting. You know, it's the centurion's child and others who he doesn't even have to be present. Or he just speaks into Lazarus' life. But in this case, Jesus spits into the dirt and makes mud and puts it on the blind man's eyes. Sends him to the pool. He washes it off and he can see for the very first time in his life. I remember thinking as a young teenager, reading this passage, thinking, well, maybe Jesus knew that there were chemical compounds in that dirt. First of all, that would be a miracle in itself, wouldn't it? I don't know why Jesus does what he does, but he does this this function of putting mud in his eyes and sight returns. And if you or somebody you know, somebody you loved or somebody you've given care to have ever been without sight, you know what that's like. It's very difficult and very complicated to work your way through life without sight. And this man had always been blind. So everybody knew that he had to be led in places that he wasn't familiar with. He had to be taken care of. There are things that couldn't be accomplished. So it was clear his sight had returned. And then the religious people look in. The Pharisees see Jesus. They see the effects of this miracle in front of all the people. What do they do? He healed on the Sabbath. He can't be godly. Folks, there was no rule that required that people who needed help couldn't be helped on the Sabbath. But the Pharisees 
figured that that must be his work, and it was accomplished on the Sabbath. And in their long and complex code of religious do's and don'ts, they were able to poke fun at, to diminish in their minds this miracle because it was on the Sabbath. Then it became a Europe opinion and my opinion. Okay, blind man, now you see, but don't you understand it was on the Sabbath? How could he be of God? The response is really telling. The response is clear. He says, in essence, I've always been blind, and now I see. I don't know much else, paraphrased. I can't tell you everything about the Sabbath. I don't know all the history of this Jesus. But what I do know is that I was blind, and now I see. He gave a simple testimony to a question that was presented to him by the most powerful people in their culture. Even his parents were afraid to respond because they didn't want to be socially ostracized or religiously ostracized by being removed from the temple, which is what the Pharisees did because they had the people under their thumb and they exerted power. They were afraid to even respond, but the testimony of the blind man who could see was clear. What I do know is I was blind and now I see. The church bodies that have gone away, the people who are exiting the church because it isn't aligned with their personal beliefs or lack of understanding of the moral absolutes and the character of God, the answer is not stronger arguments or necessarily more exciting programs. The issue really is the obedience of the body of Christ to tell our story that we were blind, but now we see. And that that opportunity to know the God of eternity through his grace is available to people who are without sight spiritually and need to see. We sing amazing grace. I once was blind, but now I see. It's the expression of grace. Today, in our last few minutes, I want to give you one of the world's simplest evangelism outlines. Just a template for sharing your faith in a way that you can share in your office or in your schoolroom or with a spouse, uh, with a sibling, somebody you're close to. And by the way, I know, I know that the people that you're closest to are the most difficult sometimes to share with because they see any inconsistencies or any, um, any pattern of sin or any difficulty. They see your humanness and it may feel like your testimony needs to be such that you are flawless in order to somehow give credence to the gospel, but you don't. Your message is, I was blind, I was hopeless, but now I have hope. Now I see Here's the outline. It's, it's very, very simple. It's three points. Easy. Number one, your life before Christ. Your life before Christ. Three-point outline. Super simple. God's plan for evangelism. Your life before Christ. I was spiritually blind. 
spiritually blind. I was hopeless. I didn't have peace in my life. I was carrying the burden of sin that I couldn't pay for. It's the testimony of your life before Christ. In my own life, I came to Christ at 13. Uh, I didn't have a church-going family. If some of you have a military background, I went to Protestant Sunday school, some in elementary school. And by God's grace, I learned some scriptures. We had some memory work, and I'm grateful for that. I have those typed sheets on the inside of my King James Bible with the zipper that stays on my shelf next to the most important things in my life. And God instilled some of his word in my life. But my family didn't attend. And I had a moment when I heard the sharing of an individual at one overnight retreat that talked about the need to give your life to Christ and to publicly profess that. And the next morning at First Baptist Church in Columbus, I sat about two pews from the front. I was on go the whole time. And we got to the invitation hymn, wherever he leads, I'll go. And I ran to the front. I mean, I was there. Now, I'd been going to church a couple of years, and the pastor at the time I thought was about 111 years old. And I got to the front, the organs playing, the choir singing, the congregation standing. And he argued with me that I was already a Christian and a member of the church. And I'm like, no, I'm lost. I've just come to Christ last night. I didn't have a dramatic testimony. Uh, I didn't do much crack before I was 13. <laughs> didn't sell uh, arms to terrorists. Uh, wasn't, wasn't carjacking anybody. I, I was actually a pretty compliant, pleaser kind of kid. But I needed the hope of my sins forgiven and the hope of life eternal in Christ. Simple outline, what was your life like before Christ? Now, some of you people in the room have carjacked somebody, right? Or maybe you had a period where you might have been doing crack. That's a real thing. But I was barely 13 years old. I didn't have a splashy testimony. I didn't have this 180 degrees from prison to Jesus. I I didn't have that. I had a simple, I was lost and then found, I was blind and then I could see. The testimony of how I came to Jesus was twofold and I gave a hint of it. I had some of God's word embedded in my heart because I'd memorized scripture early on in my life and then I heard the testimony of others who gave the testimony of Jesus saving them and I said in the simplest terms, folks, I need that. That's all it was. I need that. Jesus, I need you to forgive me. I need the gift of eternal life. And then our testimony, life before Christ, how we come to Christ, and then life since Christ, for me, is pretty simple. I had peace in my life. I remember lying in my bed. I'm 13 years old, and I'm 65 now, and this still happens. On occasion, I just say, God, I'm thankful for your grace and what I don't understand, you understand and I rest in you. I had a great pastor one time who said, Gary, doubt your doubts and believe your beliefs. And I have many times said, God, I don't understand what I don't understand, but I trust you. 
And there's been a peace of the Holy Spirit that has permeated my life at those points. The hope for the church is not simply church plants. It's not missionaries in every nation. It's not better media. It's not more significant and complicated strategies. The hope for the church is that believers will be obedient to make disciples who make disciples. And the starting point of that is evangelism. It is the telling of the good news, and it can be as simple as, Bob, man, I, I know you're not going to church these days. How are you spiritually? How, you have a relationship with God? Are you connected to a church? No? Well, Bob, I just want you to know, I didn't either. And then at 13, or whatever your story, at 23, or after college, or after I got out of the service, or while I was in the Marines, or whatever your story is, I realized I needed a relationship with God. And since then, my life has had a lot of peace. And I've just got confidence in eternity. And, and Bob, I just want you to know if I can share how that comes about with you, that would be my honor. It's not that complicated. Evangelism, evangelism doesn't require a track in your wallet, men. Ladies, you don't have to have a Bible in your purse. It's, I was blind. Jesus encountered me, and I encountered him. I responded to him, and now I see. Now I have a relationship with God. Revival in many of our churches, in many of our traditions, has looked like an effective pulpiteer in a big program, and God uses that, no doubt. But the real pattern of Scripture are believers who share, pray, live their testimony in such a way that they connect to others to say, I was blind, but now I see. I want to encourage you this morning. You can remember this. It's life before Christ, how I came to Christ, my life since. Even with the people who are most complicated, who are closest to you, or maybe you think are beyond hope, everybody needs a witness of the saving, life-changing power of Jesus. Worship, responding to God, giving our minds attention, our hearts affection to Him, responding to Him for who He is and what He's done, and what He's done in our life in saving us, how we were before how we came to Christ, what our life is like since. It's one of the reasons the church exists, to propagate the kingdom of God, to share the good news. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to the salvation of all who believe, first the Jews and then the Gentiles. This morning, I've given you a bit of my testimony and I trust that you have one. But if by chance you don't, this is your day. Because God loves you, created you, knew you before the foundations of the world. And God has a heart for you that you would know him. He has forgiven the sin in your life. It's not sins. It's not a list. He's forgiven sin. The reason you sin is because you're a sinner. And God has said, I love you. That's grace. Grace is unmerited, it's unearned, and God 
extends and shows his grace to us, the Bible says in the book of Romans, in that while we were yet sinners, he loves us. If you don't know Christ, if the peace we're talking about isn't something you know, if you don't have confidence in your Savior, or perhaps you've believed but you've really never connected to the church, this is a morning for you. We're going to sing in just a couple of moments. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing an invitation song, a time together of continued worship. And I will meet you at the front and whoever else. And we would love to pray with you, to encourage you, and to make sure to nail down the relationship that you enjoy with Jesus. May we pray together? Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful for your grace that in spite of my sin, you love me. Father, your love extends to the world. Your word says that you so loved the world that you gave your only son, that whoever would believe would not perish, but have everlasting life. And God, we're thankful that you're faithful to that. So this morning, if there's a man or a woman, a child in this room who's not trusted you, I pray that they would do that right where they are right now. In the simplest terms, God, I need you. I need forgiveness and life. God, I'm blind. I need to see. For those who may not have connected to the body of Christ, who have not joined a church and and regularly attended and and lived life with other believers, I pray today would be a day that that would begin in earnest. Father, I pray courage, leadership by the work of your Holy Spirit, that in this time, whatever we need to do, our yes would be on the table. And we would step forward. We would, in a very, very positive, very concrete way, say yes to you in front of these witnesses who are the church. God, thank you for your grace and our time together today. You're so good to us, and we love you so much. Have your way in this time. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. May we stand together as we sing and worship together. If God's put a decision to trust Christ or you want to know more or something's occurring in your life and you'd like to be prayed with and over and about, or maybe you want to come and be a part of this church. We'd love to meet you, pray with you this morning. You come as we worship.